At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Well, how many are excited about the Word of God this morning? Uh, I'm excited about the Word of God. It's always exciting to teach through Scripture, but there are certain moments where the text that you get a chance to speak from, teach from, aligns itself so well with what's going on in the broader culture that you remember uh, something that you know to be true, and that is that the Bible is both timeless and timely. It's not obsolete or outdated. It is just as relevant today as it always has been because it is the Word of God. And so it transcends time because it is God's Word, but yet it speaks so appropriately to the moments that we're in. So today I want you to join me as we continue on in our study of, of 1 Peter. And for all of our friends that are joining online, I, I welcome you. We are committed to those of you who are worshiping at home today. And for all of our friends who are trusting us and worshiping with us in person, I want to say thank you as well for trusting us uh, during this season. Today we're going to look at a text in chapter 2 of 1 Peter going to start in verse 13 in just a moment, but the text we're going to look up takes up a question, what does it mean to be a good citizen? What does it mean to be a good citizen? And we're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack what it means to be a good citizen, and I'm grateful for the practicality of Peter's writings. Now, now Peter is uh, very consistent in what his theme is. His theme has been hope from the very beginning. Verse number three tells us of chapter one that we've been born again to a living hope. What Peter wants over and again is for the believer to know that regardless of social situation or circumstance, that we're to reflect the hope of Christ, that we should be marked by hope, that, that people should look at us and, and say that our disposition, our attitude when the world seems to be falling apart is drastically different than those who don't know Christ. How many believe in your heart that Christ makes a difference in the way that we see the world? Uh, Paul says we shouldn't even mourn like those who have no hope. That even when the worst of life throws itself at us, that we would be able to have the best of attitudes because we know the resurrected Lord, his precious promises, and his faithful presence. But what Peter wants us to begin to think about, and he does this through chapter 1 and into chapter 2, is how should that hopeful disposition affect our relationships? In other words, how should it change the way we relate to people? And so in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 1, he deals with how we relate to those who are outside of the faith. He says we should live holy, set apart for God, that we should conduct ourselves in fear. Fear of man? No. Fear of God? Yes. We should carry ourselves in a way that they know that there's a difference in our ethics, in our morality, in the way that we treat uh, the world around us. We should be known for our good conduct. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. But then when he gets to verse 22 of chapter 1, he talks about how we should relate to one another. And he says we should love one another sincerely, eagerly, earnestly from a pure heart. That there should be such a deep and genuine love among the people of God that it becomes a sweet aroma to a watching world. 
Now, some of that is evangelistic, but a lot of that is just a confirmation of the type of community we're to be. We're supposed to be a countercultural community. So the divisiveness in the world should not be the divisiveness in here. The vitriol of the world should not be the vitriol here. The tribalism of the world should not be the tribalism of the church. We're supposed to love one another earnestly. Now, as we get into chapter 2, he gets into a lot of practical relationships, and we're going to visit all of those. But he starts with government, and he starts with what it means to be a good citizen. And here's his basic premise of chapter, 13, of chapter 2, rather, verses 13 through 17, is that God's people are good citizens. How many want to be a good citizen? I hope that's your, your hope. Three of you raised your hand. That makes me somewhat nervous, but I'll forge ahead anyway. There's, there's certain practices that we're going to have to demonstrate if we are going to be good citizens. I think a little bit of the historical context of this, this, this passage, though, will really help, is that Peter's not writing up under a democracy as we know in a democratic republic of electing officials the way we have it. There's little to no voice for him and for other believers and followers of Christ into their form of government, into their government leaders or officials. There's not this sense of the balance of power, the way that we would understand it during that time. The emperor reigned supreme. He had the ability to execute not only his good desires, but his bad desires. He had the power and authority to do so. With that mindset, let's look at verses 13 and 14. Look at what he says, be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. I'm going to stop right there. What is Peter saying? For God's sake, submit to your rulers. This is challenging. This is challenging to read, let alone apply. There are certain verses of Scripture that, as a preacher, you know you have to preach, but it keeps you up at night. I probably tossed back and forth more last night over this passage than I have over a passage in a long, long time. I I do it not because of a sense of resistance to the, the, the Holy Spirit here, but to struggle with how does this apply practically? Before we get to practical application, though, let's first just consider what Peter is writing to us. He writes to us that we're supposed to submit to every human institution. And then if we, just to make sure we're not confused by that, he begins to uh, go through various offices that we're supposed to submit to. To the emperor as supreme, in our case, this would be the president or to governors as sent by him, by God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Anybody else having trouble with this verse already? We can say, man, birds of a feather flock together. Some of you are more spiritual than the rest of us, and it's easy for you. But for those of us who understand human government, we understand that God uses fallen people to govern fallen people. It's, it's, it's not as if the nations of the world in which Christians are scattered abroad are theocracies. No, these are governed by fallen human beings. This is the only form of government, earthly government, that humanity has ever known. But yet here we see this clear command 
And it's not just here. It's Matthew 22. It's Titus 3. It's 1 Timothy 2. It's all throughout Scripture that we're commanded again and again that we're supposed to submit to civil government. Now, let's consider for just a moment the type of governmental leadership that Peter is riding under. Now, we may assume that the, the emperor that he's referring to or the governors that he's riding under are, are, are uh, friendly to the Christian faith. Surely, Peter must be referring to uh, those who are uh, stalwarts for religious liberty. Uh, clearly, Peter must be encouraging us to submit to those whose values align to ours, morality aligns to ours. That, that has to be the type of emperor he was under to write something as bold as this charge before us. Well, if historians are right, this is written around A.D. 62, A.D. 63, and we know that Peter's writing from Rome, and, and if we do the, uh, the research historically, what we discover is that the emperor he's under is uh, the notorious, sexually immoral, arrogant, and violent Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. This is the same Nero that hated Christians so much that when he burned Rome, he blamed the Christians falsely for doing it because he wanted to ruin the reputation of those who were in the way, as we were called. This is the same Nero who, in order to execute some type of a retribution for this false accusation, burned Christians alive, even using their bodies to light his garden. This is the same Nero. You think you got bad leaders now. Think about what Peter is writing under. But yet Peter writes boldly that we are supposed to submit to every governing institution. And again, it's, it's not just Peter. It's all throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter. You can just read it throughout. It's consistent. It's a consistent message. So why? Why should we submit to the governing institution, civil government. Well, the first reason he gives is in verse number 13. Very clear, the ultimate reason, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake. Ultimately, our submission is to the Lord, and because the Lord has told us to submit to governing institutions, we submit to those institutions because somehow, in God's infinite wisdom, it communicates credibility for our witness. That the church was never called into being to be a socially subversive organization. That ultimately our agenda has far less to do with upsetting the political order of this world and far more to do with advancing the kingdom of our Christ. Submit for the Lord's sake as unto the Lord. Anybody ever had to do something tough for the Lord's sake? Anybody ever had to love someone you didn't want to love for the Lord's sake? Anyone have ever had to take on an assignment you really didn't want to do for the Lord's sake? I'm not getting a lot of amens. But part of being a Christian means that we don't just get God to validate what we want to do or our preferences. There are certain tough tasks that he calls me to simply for his sake. Will you do it for my sake? Will you do it because you love me? Will you do it because you honor me? I know it's not your preference, but will you do it for me? 
The second reason why he gives that we should submit to emperors and yes, to governors is because of verse number 14. He says, or to governors as sent by him, why? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Again, reminding us of the ultimate role of civil government. Beyond just individuals, the whole institution or establishment of civil government is to govern a fallen world. If, if scripture is right and man has a depravity issue that we are sinners by nature, then this whole structure that God has instituted of civil government is absolutely essential so that evildoers might be punished and those who do good might be praised. Now, do they execute that with perfection? No, never have, never will. This is what it means to be in a fallen world. The competitiveness of politics means that there are times when everyone who is in this role will be tempted to compromise. And that is why they need both our prayers and our accountability. They need our prayers so that they might be covered. And they might be surrounded by believers who are praying earnestly for their souls and that God would surround them with good and godly advisors. They need that. And yes, they need our accountability. There is space in Scripture at times for even civil disobedience. What is the limit? What is the limit of our submission to them? Well, I will tell you that it seems to me from surveying Scripture that the limits of our submission to them comes only in the realm of their challenges to our ability to live out our faith and sharing Christ. Beyond that, it seems to me that we are called to submit to them as it pertains to the practical matters of civil government. Let's look at a couple passages. Keep your finger there. Go to Romans 13. Romans 13, this classic passage of Scripture as it pertains to um, government. So much could be studied here, and I encourage you to study more on your own on this subject. But look at what it says, verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We're to be in subjection to civil government. He doesn't mince words here. Even later on, he talks about taxes. And you'll remember Jesus was put into this kind of a gotcha question and answer in his day. Matthew 22 records the exchange. Jesus, should we pay taxes so that uh, this, this revenue would go to uh, the Romans who are occupying uh, our nation, our people who are oppressing our people, should we pay taxes to them? And this is a trap for Jesus. Uh, if he says no, then he is directly opposing Roman authority. If he says yes, he is a Benedict Arnold supporting the oppression of his people. What's his response? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The coin bears Caesar's image. So you give him that coin. Yes, you pay earthly taxes, but you render to God's what is God and what belongs to God 
the coin bears Caesar's image. You bear God's image. You give God your whole heart. How many know that we're never called to surrender our whole hearts to this earthly world? We ultimately belong to Christ and him alone. How many believe that with all of your heart? So what is the limit? As far as I understand it, you look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, go there with me, verses 18 and 19, I'm sorry, 18 through 20, and it says this, so they, uh, so they called them, this is the Sanhedrin with the apostles, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So now this goes beyond speed limits and seatbelts. This goes beyond uh, various civil laws to be able to have an orderly society. Now they're trying to restrict their ability to proclaim the name of Christ. So how do Peter and the rest respond? But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We're not going to compromise. We will not stop preaching the gospel. I don't care who is in office. I don't care what laws they try to pass, what ordinances they put to restrict it. We will always proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And if that means that we do it while being carried off to jail, we will do it while being carried off to jail because ultimately our hearts are submitted to him. And so our responsibility is to submit to civil authority inasmuch as the rules and laws don't hinder our ability to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So for God's sake, for God's sake, submit yourself to your rulers. Submit yourself to your rulers. You know, one of the things that we often do as parents, and I got little ones, is to tell them that they're supposed to submit uh, to us and to respect us. How many agree with me on that? Isn't that a novel idea? Right? And after a few bribes, normally it works. But we tell our children that they're supposed to submit to us. But here's the one thing that we have to ask ourselves, is where do they see us modeling submission? We tell them they're supposed to submit to us even when they don't like what we're telling them. We tell them they're supposed to submit to us even when they don't understand. But where do they see us modeling that? Are we guilty of asking our children to do something that they've never seen us do? Something worthy of our consideration. You know, uh, in the election that is to come, we don't know. Only God knows what uh, Wednesday may, may hold for us. Uh, hopefully we'll know by Wednesday, maybe a little bit after that. We don't know all of it, but we do know this, that when Wednesday morning comes, the church is still called to be the church. Amen? This will still be our constitution. We are called to be governed by this. We will still be called to pray for whoever is in office. Uh, the first day after the election, it has been my practice as a pastor and a believer to make sure that I wake up early that morning, if the president is known, to pray for them. But not just for them, but for all the offices that we're electing. And what am I going to pray for? I want to pray that God would do a work of his grace and mercy in their hearts just like he's done in my heart. I want to pray that God will surround them with good and godly counselors. I'm going to pray that if they are far from the Lord, that ultimately their hearts will be bowed down to the Lord. And I'm going to pray that God will work his grace through civil government 
and that God would give the church, me, the ability to obey his word. Submit to the uh, ruling authorities. Why? For the Lord's sake. But then there's a second practice that he tells us that he wants us to do. If we're going to be good citizens, verse number 15 becomes very important. He tells us that we should do good for goodness sake. Look at what it says, verse number 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For goodness sake, do good. This is what, this is what Peter is encouraging us towards. He's saying that if you're going to be a good citizen, not only do you need to submit to civil authority as appointed by God, but you need to be known as a people of good works. I want you to think about that for just a moment. He says, this is the will of God concerning you. Now, how many have been praying earnestly over your life for uh, God to reveal his will to you? Anybody been praying for that? I know I pray for that often. And so often we pray for that in, in, in areas where it seems to be unclear. God, is it your will for me to take this job or not? Is it your will for me to marry this person or not? Is it your will for me to wear this shirt or not, right? All of these things. But there are certain times in the Bible where God makes his will crystal clear. And where God makes his will clear, then we're bound by it. And what is his will here? is that we would do good, that we would be known for doing so much good that it would even put to shame the ignorance of foolish people. Here, Peter presupposes that we're going to get criticized and pushed back from a secular pagan world for our faith in Jesus Christ. They're not going to like our beliefs. As a matter of fact, this group of Christians by the... uh, polytheists of the Roman Empire were seen as atheists. Think about that for a moment. They were seen as atheists because they didn't worship the pantheon of gods that were a part of the Greek religious system, Greek mythology. They just worship one, Christ as king. This is This is very political to say Christ is king and Caesar is not, to say Christ is Lord and Caesar is not, put them in a very um, um, un- acceptable place in the eyes of most, most Romans. Most Romans would have looked at them with critical eyes and saw them in a negative way. So how do you overcome when the world sees you with eyes of suspicion? How do we as a church, how do believers throughout all generations, how do we overcome the negative sentiment of the cultures that we're in that are hostile often to the message of Christ and to his lordship in our lives and all things? Well, one of the ways we do it is through good works. We should have so many good works that it even wins over our enemies. You know, there's a historical reference to another Roman emperor. His name was Julian. And Julian writes this concerning uh, the advancement of Christianity. In his day, this Roman emperor who was not happy or excited about the advancement of Christianity says this, their cause has advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that uh, the Galileans, as he calls them, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Think about that scandal. 
the scandal of doing so many good works that, that they didn't just care for theirs. What does that tell you about uh, the attitude of people during that day? It was, again, it was a tribalistic attitude. So much of their attitude is the attitude that we have in our generation of just taking care of our own. But not so for those uh, terrible Galileans, not so for those who follow that Christ no, they take care of not only their own, but they even take care of ours. Consider that scandal. They take care of not only their poor, but our poor as well. This is what the church is called to be known for. We're called to be known for such good works that even when they bring their false accusations against our character, slander against our character, that it won't be believed. It'll be put to shame. It'll be proven as foolishness. You know, part of the way I, I, I train my children, I'm sure you would agree with this as well, is I tell them your reputation precedes you. How many believe that? Your reputation precedes you. So if you're known for being a crook or a shyster, if you're known for lying or doing devious things, then don't get all bent out of shape when someone accuses you of something that you didn't really do because your track record has put us in a situation where your behavior dictates that we assume the worst. But if your behavior is good and you consistently demonstrate honesty and consistency and morality and you are good uh, consistently, then even when someone brings a false accusation against you, we're going to be apt not to believe it because of your reputation. How many desire that the church would have a reputation for doing good? Amen? That is wired into our DNA. And I pray that that will be true for our future as well. The third and final practice that we need to embrace if we're going to uh, uh, really be good citizens is for freedom's sake, we ought to live to serve. Look at verse 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, there we go again, honor the emperor. No asterisk by it. Didn't just say honor the good emperors, honor the ones that you like, honor the ones that you align yourself with. Doesn't mean that there can't be some disagreement, but even in disagreement, we don't resort to the name calling and the pettiness of the world. We bear the fruit of the spirit even in our political disagreements. Can I get an amen? for that, even through grit teeth. <laughs> when Peter says we ought to live as free, he's not talking about freedom from a nationalistic perspective that we're thinking of. No, he's talking about this Latin term, karam deo. What does this mean? It means to live in the face of God, to live with a, with a freedom knowing that we have been liberated spiritually. No longer are we a slave to evil. No longer are we bound to do unrighteousness, but we have been free to do what is good. We have been free to serve. We are not to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants. Living as servants, that's what the word minister really means. It, it means to live as a servant. All of us should be ministers of his grace and his goodness, living as servants before a watching world. And how does the world look differently when Christians live to serve it? Well, all you got to do is look at the history. 
It was Christians who started the university system and public education because we live to serve. There's a reason why most hospitals are named after Christian saints. It's because Christians were uh, at the forefront of medicine and caring for the sick because we live to serve. Not just education, not just, not just caring for the sick, but in every area of society, you look at it and you will see what the world looks like when Christians live to serve. Everywhere where Christianity is the governing religion of a particular country, there is greater rights for children, for women, for the poor, for the marginalized. Are we perfect? No, but when we live to serve, the world is changed for the good and for his glory. And that's what the world needs from us today. They need us to submit to authority for God's sake, to be able to do good for goodness sake, and to serve for freedom's sake. We have been liberated. We are not bound. And we know that this world is not our home. But as long as we're here, we're going to occupy till he returns. We're going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're going to demonstrate what a life looks like when it's been transformed by the presence of the master. And how many can covenant to live this way? How many are committed to living as Christians bound by the word of God? Amen. This week is going to be a tumultuous week on many fronts. But for us who are grounded in Christ, may we live as Peter has told us with our full hope in the grace that will be revealed at Christ's return. May our trust be in him. And if your heart is unsettled and you don't know Jesus today, I pray that today would be the day you surrender your heart to him. I would not want to navigate through this fallen world without the loving arms of a Savior if you don't know Christ. I look at these cameras and I look into the eyes of those that, you, that are here. If you don't know Christ, today I want you to surrender your heart to him. Now, if you're online, all you have to do is type in the word connect. Last week, a young lady did that, and it blessed my heart just seeing a young lady type the word connect, saying, I want to give my heart to Jesus, and I want to be connected to Christ and to the local church. How many praise God for that? So if you're watching online, I want you to do that today. And if you're here, as soon as this service is over, there'll be friends lining the altar, leaders from our church, for you to come running and saying, Lord, I want to surrender my heart to you. Today is Communion Sunday as well, so hopefully you got one of these fancy communion cups, and now would be the time for you to pull that out. And as we go into communion, I just want to consider, in light of all that we just read, one more passage of Scripture. It comes from Isaiah. And uh, in, a few, uh, in a few weeks, we'll be reading this one as we celebrate Christmas. Look at what it says in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. But to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. How many praise God that his kingdom reigns forever and ever. He is unelected. He is unimpeachable. He will be king, not only on Tuesday, but Wednesday and forevermore. That's where our hope lies. How many praise God for that truth? Let's all stand together. Let's all stand together as we prepare to partake 
together, there are two uh, uh, components to this. First, the clear tab, you will lift that. And if you are at home, this is a great time for you to grab maybe a wafer, some juice, and just join in with us. On that night in which you knew you would be betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. Lord, we remember. We remember your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the sacrifice you made for us, for laying down your life so that we might live. And then that second tab opens up the juice. Sorry, no wine this morning. After supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Just do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. Thank you for the precious promises, Jesus. They're signed in your blood. Thank you, your covenant keeper, your promise keeper. We love you and we give you praise. And all of God's people said, Amen and amen. Folks, we don't know all that this week will hold, but we know who holds this week. So as you are dismissed, go in joy, go in peace, go in hope, and go forth declaring the love and the goodness of our great God and King. God bless you. I love you, and we'll see you next week. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.